Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading comes from Luke 12, 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies of the valley, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The word of the Lord. This fall, we're making our way through the parables of Jesus, and we found at least to this point, that parables are incredibly challenging, but also very confounding. They can be read from different angles. They often have more than one assertion or one message. Uh, even as we saw with the prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal uh, son, or the prodigal father, as we renamed it, you can read it really from the younger son, from the father, from the older son, and derive several different meanings from the parable. Parables are metaphors that Their meaning, while complex, is unendingly challenging. And we'll find that even more so today. But today we have a little bit of help because as Luke 
expresses or records the parable of the rich fool, uh, there's a fair bit of Jesus' teaching attached to it to help us understand what uh, his agenda was in telling the parable. And so we'll be considering that as well. And we see that it's actually a particular occasion that gives rise to the need for or the telling of the parable. What is that particular occasion? A man comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I want you to be an arbitrator for me. I want you to tell my brother to share the estate with me. Okay, inheriting, we don't know the details, right? But the estate is all of the wealth of the family, and somehow this brother feels like he's being shortchanged. He says, Jesus, I want you to arbitrate for me. Now, the funny thing is that the man already, even in his asking and his instruction to Jesus, doesn't want Jesus to arbitrate at all, does he? How do you know? He tells Jesus what he wants him to do. But if you really wanted someone to arbitrate for you, you would go to the person and say, tell us what to do. But the man goes to Jesus and says, this is what I want you to do. Tell my brother to share the estate with me. Not, you can rule on this and we'll heed your decision. But the man already has an agenda. When he goes to Jesus, and this, even at the very outset, points up to us the incredible difficulty of the topic that we're talking about, which is the relationship between money and anxiety. And the symptom, the outward sign of the struggle of this relationship is greed. And greed is difficult because no one thinks they're greedy. Right? Many pastors I've heard point this out, but in 10 years of ministry, I've heard people confess everything under the sun. I've heard people confess things I can't even relate to you. Right? It wouldn't be appropriate to share in this context. I have never once heard a person confess to me that they struggle with greed. How can that be? How can, in 10 years of ministry, with all kinds of sins being confessed across the board, no one struggles with greed? That's amazing. Given that we live in the richest country in the world, right, or one of the richest countries of the world, and we live in luxury compared to most of the world, but we don't struggle with greed. Well, I think we have some business to do with this parable this morning. Jesus uses this opportunity. The man doesn't even understand that he's demonstrating a level of greed in approaching Jesus this way. But Jesus then tells the story, and then we'll engage some teaching. And the way that I want to approach the parable this morning, or the overall context that we're considering, is to note first that if you try to handle your anxiety, it will destroy you. Right? If you take charge of, I've got, I'm anxious about these things in my life, I'm going to exert control over them to mediate, to handle my anxiety, you will be destroyed. So, secondly, we need to note that you're not supposed to be anxious. And thirdly, we're going to note what really casts out anxiety. What replaces anxiety? But first, we need to do business with the reality that if we try to handle our own anxiety, it will indeed destroy you. Jesus, look at verse 15. Even as he engages the parable, he tells where he's going. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not exist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, as we start to consider the words of Jesus, we have to be on the same page of the crowd to whom Jesus is speaking. Jesus is not speaking to us, right? Right? 
Who are we? We're people who debate which smartphone plan to go with, right? Who opt up for a new car on a regular basis, who want to upsize our house, who play for, pay for cable programs that give us a billion channels, right? Who is Jesus actually speaking to? People who had one set of clothes. People who often didn't know that they'd have enough food to meet that day. They lived a subsistent lifestyle, day to day. Right? There is no excess. There is no luxury in the ancient world for the average person. Meat would have been an incredibly rare luxury. And to these people, Jesus says, beware of your covetousness. Life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. They didn't really have an abundance of possessions, at least not by our standards. And that should cause all of us to have a little voice that goes off inside of our head and our heart that says, uh-oh. Because we are so far removed and so saturated with wealth and luxury and a commitment to pleasure that to consider that Jesus is speaking these words to a subsistent ancient culture should make us all marvel. should make us all realize that we indeed are given to covetousness and to greed. It's easy to miss confessing the sin with which you struggle the most because you don't actually see it. So we see in the story the fool... Right is ridiculously self-centered. Right, he's doing well. He's uh, made so much in his estate. He's got so much food. He doesn't have enough place to store it. So he says, "What am I going to do?" But notice how the story is told and how it's framed. Starting in verse uh, seventeen, he thinks to himself, "What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns." I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, over and over again, I, 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 the entire reference of the rich man is himself and his own pleasure. There is no reference to God. There is no reference to the poor. Both are things that he's been called to as uh, presumably as a follower of God that Jesus is holding out as an example of failure. He's a fool. Why? Because he's built bigger barns to store more grain? Well, it's not just simply... See, one of the hard things is that wealth in and alone isn't bad. The problem is our our great love for wealth, and not just our love for wealth, it's the reason that we love wealth is because we believe wealth will handle our anxiety. We believe that the power to buy something and to have more possessions right, will will mitigate, will help us to, to go through this precarious and unpredictable and scary world. And he's a fool because even as he's decided to build all this up and to store all of his grain, God says, tonight your life is required of you, which makes his his plans nothing but vanity. Right? He dies. Who possesses his stuff? Who knows? What difference did his agenda make? None. It does nothing for him. And then when he stands before God, his money has not provided for him to have a good standing before God. He is invested completely in the wrong way. He has the worst investment strategy possible. It's all lost. We are similarly foolish in having an overconfidence in what wealth and the opportunity to buy provides us. Right? Do we not live in a culture in which we are always thinking that money is power because money gives us choice. And choice is freedom and autonomy. And those are things that we highly value culturally. There's a great Simpsons episode in which uh, a new store comes to town and it's Monstro Mart, 
right? Where and the slogan is where, where um, shopping is a bewildering experience. And Monster Mart, of course, is his shelves floor to ceiling. And Nutmeg comes in a 12-pound container. And the express checkout line is a 1,000 items or less. And so the Simpsons ultimately become overwhelmed at Monster Mart and decide to go back to Abu's Quickie Mart. Right? Now, the Simpsons often is really a fairly brilliant commentary on culture at large. Um, I don't watch it that much, so please don't hear me advocating. And now I'm scared that you're going to go watch it and see something terrible. And Yeah, I shouldn't say that. I don't watch enough Simpsons to really relay that. Uh, so, that, grain of salt. Anyway, it's a great example for the context of this sermon and this passage, right? And that we think choice is freedom and power, but it's really not. In fact, social science has demonstrated over and over again that you are most miserable when you have the most choice. Right? Why are the wealthiest countries in the world the least happy? One of the reasons is that choice is a very counterintuitive feature. It doesn't really grant us uh, what we think it does. In fact, Tesco, which is the largest supermarket in Great Britain, has recently decided, because it's losing so much money, to go from offering 90,000 items to offering 30,000 items. Why? Why shrink what they're offering to the consumer? Because they're looking at stores like Aldi, which is making money hand over fist. Tesco offers 28 kinds and sizes of ketchup. Aldi offers one kind and one size. And there's actually a rebellion of sorts going on among consumers who are so over-inundated uh, with choice, they want things to be simpler. Right? How often have you found yourself staring at a wall of options to be overwhelmed by those options? And actually, to now, your pleasure starts to diminish by virtue of those options. There was a study done where people were given a, a dollar-off coupon if they bought a, a jam of jar. And one group, jar of jam. And one group was, uh, was put in front of a wall that had six options. 30% of those people bought a jar. Another group was put before a wall that had 24 different options. Only 3% purchased a jar. Right? Choice becomes overwhelming and isn't actually empowering. It's something that defeats us. Uh, one of the other things that it's, it, choice is noted to do for us is to diminish our pleasure because it raises our expectations. It wasn't that long, too long ago, when I was growing up, that there were essentially one pair of jeans. You went and bought a pair of jeans, and you wore them, and you wore them a lot, and you put knees on, or patches on the knees when the knees wore out, right? And then you got another pair of jeans, the same pair of jeans, to replace the old pair of jeans. And they fit okay, but it wasn't a big deal. But now, right, you go to a store in the jeans wall, and you've got, you know, stonewashed, and holes in the knees and holes in the thigh and holes all over the place or you've got boot cut or slim fitting or ones you can't even get your leg into, right? You've got a hundred different options. But So what happens is that people go in and they, it raises their expectation and so you think, oh, there's a pair that really fits me. There's a perfect pair of jeans, right, with all of these options and I will find that perfect pair of jeans. Which in reality, you never find the perfect pair of jeans and you go home and what's really uh, interesting is that you go home thinking about the options you liked in the, in the jeans you passed over and the disappointing features of the jeans that you bought. Right? Now, this is true of any consumable good. Right? It isn't just, jeans is just as an example. But what, what's happening in the midst of uh, ridiculous choice as a re- result of exuberant wealth 
is that you experience less pleasure because you're, you're overwhelmed and it changes your expectations so that you, um, you think that you're going to get something perfect, but it's just not there. All right, one more aspect of this choice phenomenon, which is it not only diminishes pleasure, but it increases your anxiety. Right, because you're stressed out. You feel like it's on you to get the perfect pair of jeans. Or you're frustrated, you have additional frustration by being disappointed by something that you did get. Sociologically, this has produced a phenomenon that we've never seen before, which is um, in Japan, they're called soshuku danshi. In the West, they're called herbivore men. This is what's happening. Men, so dating, for those younger generations uh, than, uh, than my generation, right? Dating is largely an online experience, right? Various features, you go online, you meet people, and this, and particularly amongst young people in urban centers, uh, it's apps that facilitate dating, right? It's no longer through personal connection, and so you go on and you actually kind of scroll through a catalog of options, What does that do to you psychologically? Again, you have all the stress of making the right choice and all the anxiety of being disappointed in your choice. And so some men have become so annoyed at the process, so overwhelmed with what's involved and all the anxiety that it produces, they've decided, you know what, I can just get what I need online. I'm out of dating. And that's what they decide to do. And this is, we've, we've come up with a new name for this phenomenon as it's developed for males in our culture. My whole point in this is that do not be naive about how much wealth corrupts your soul. Do not be naive that wealth will bring you happiness or that your life consists in abundance of possessions. Do not be a fool like the rich fool. Right? These kinds of insights that Jesus provides for us, that we again learn more about through social science, should make us say that, oh, wealth isn't really going to handle my anxiety. Something else needs to. And this leads us to our second point, which is what do we do with our anxiety? Because if you look in verse 22, Jesus is coming off this parable. It says, therefore I, or there I tell, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Do not be anxious. Really. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me mad. Right? Seriously? Do not be anxious. Jesus, have you been here? Right? There's cancer and infidelity and drunk drivers who crash into a parade. There's shootings and there's unpredictable death. Right? Tell me that to not be anxious? How do you not be anxious in this world? Are you telling me that Jesus wasn't anxious in the garden? I don't buy that. So what's going on here? How does Jesus say to us, do not be anxious? Don't worry about these things because God will actually provide for you. We realize that our anxiety is a product of our trust, is a product of how we see God and understand Him and trust in Him. To the degree that we don't believe that He loves us and will care for us, we will be more anxious and we will work more to handle our anxiety in our own power. To the degree that we believe that he, he's, he's kind and He's gracious, even in the midst of a very unpredictable world, is the degree to which then there's no reason to be anxious. 
right? You know about anxiety. We all struggle with it in different ways. I have a pastor who's a friend and he stepped away from ministry. He had to because he had this, this weird compulsion. He's an anxious man and every time, um, the way he handled his anxiety was through, through technology. He, in other words, you know, you see on TV when the new thing's being released and there's a line out the door? He was always in that line. And he would say, you know, I know it's not rational, but I believed that that technology was going to order my life. That if I just got the next new thing, it would have the superior apps and I would enjoy engaging it to the degree that it would somehow alleviate the anxiety in my life. And I just felt a degree of pleasure in having that new thing. Right? And there's something you go out and you buy on a semi-regular basis, whether it's shoes or pens or whatever, and you just feel, that feels good. I feel a little bit better about the world with this new thing. It's just a way of trying to handle the anxiety that we feel to try to control some of those things, but they ultimately leave us empty. They ultimately destroy us, have we seen. So Jesus says, I want you to think about the world a little bit and God's providential care of it. You know, the, the ravens, the birds that he mentions, were the dirtiest of birds in the ancient world. They're, they're unclean according to the law. And what Jesus is saying, God cares for the dirtiest, most unclean, unholy animal. Do you not know that he cares more about you? And he's going to care for you? And then Jesus goes on and says, anxiety can't accomplish anything. Who of you, by being anxious, what does that really affect? Like at the end of the day, can you add an hour to your life? Does your anxiety actually conquer the thing in your life that's affecting you? No, of course it does. If it does anything, it makes it worse because all kinds of health problems are related to anxiety. Right? From heart disease to stress-related ailments, right? your anxiety is not going to make anything better. It's only going to make things worse. And then Jesus says that God clothes the flowers and the grass of the field and Solomon in all his glory, all his wealth wasn't clothed to the degree that they are. God is caring for the world and providing for it in such a way that your anxiety should be diminished. And if we hear Jesus' words, we have to hear that God values you. He loves you and that your anxiety is futile and that worry is the result of small faith. But there's still the reality, is there not, where you know, if you're going through a hard time or you know people that are going through a hard time or you think about raising kids in this world or making it if you're through the next week or month if you're in financial uh, you know, uh, crisis or distress, right? You feel a little bit kind of like you're, you're in the cesspool of, of the septic brokenness of the fall and God throws you a life buoy, but he doesn't pull you out, right? It's like, thanks, you're kind of caring for me, but it seems like you could be doing a lot more here to remedy the situation. And that really is where at the heart of do we trust? You see, when we look at Jesus' life and what he's saying, we can't conclude that we shouldn't be anxious because life, God will make our life easy or God will provide everything that we want, which means that we shouldn't have anxiety because suffering is actually part of God's intention. And as we enter into it, we simply trust that he is overseeing that We trust that he's accomplishing something in it. We're trusting that he's actually loving us in the midst of it. 
That's a hard thing to do, but you will either trust God to care for you, or the alternative is you will have to care for yourself. That's not a good option. right? Caring for yourself, I think, probably has not gone very well for you. And if we learn anything from the parable of the rich fool, caring for yourself ends in destruction. So are you challenging yourself to really trust in God? Or is your anxiety controlling you so that you feel like you have to care for yourself and handle all the anxiety that's happening around you? And this is why if we really trust in God, we see that a Christian who believes God is providential, that he believes is loving, he cares for the ravens, he dresses the the grass in the field, he will provide for our needs, enables one to be moved beyond anxiety and really to develop a new investment strategy, to be freed up in the application of their wealth in a radical way. Realize you have to see wealth, like anything else, is simply a symptom of where our heart is. Right? That's why Jesus can say, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where you're spending your money, that's what you love. It reveals what we're really passionate about and what we really believe will care for us and what we really believe will handle our anxiety. So how do we really trust? How do we move forward in understanding Jesus' call? In verses 30 and 31, he says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If you look around anywhere, the entire world is trying to handle their anxiety through the application of wealth. This is what all of the nations are doing. This is what anything that is outside the kingdom of God must be committed to because it is their only option. But if you believe in God's providential care, then he says, no, seek first his kingdom, and then those things that you need will be added to you. You'll actually be free to trust in his provision for all of those things. Well, it's a beautiful picture. And in verse 32, it really we see that it depends on if we believe that God really cares. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Is that not beautiful? Fear not. All the anxiety and fear that you have, Jesus says don't. Fear not because God desires to give you the kingdom, not because of what you've done, but because he is gracious and loving. And we say, that's wonderful. That's great. We receive the kingdom. I'm going to seek the kingdom, and we talk about it. And then Jesus, because he's Jesus, goes on in the next verse and says, okay, if you get this, sell your possessions and give to the poor. I think, whoa, I I didn't know you were going there, Jesus. The whole giving me the kingdom part sounded really good. But this other part about selling my possessions and giving to the needy, that not so much. And at that very moment, we realize that our hearts are incredibly torn, that we say we trust in God and his provision, But as we cling desperately to our wealth and our possessions and the comfort we perceive them to give us, we don't really seek His kingdom. Where your treasure is there, your heart is also. What would it look like to start to really sell our possessions and give to the needy? How do you grow in that? There are baby steps, and boy, we need to work at it. And we need one another to, we need to sharpen each other because I'm selfish and greedy. 
and you are too. And how are we going to move beyond that? You know, we're, we're collecting food for the Thanksgiving fixings drive, and that, all that food goes to Helping Hands Food Pantry, and they assemble that in the baskets, and the baskets are distributed to needy families in the community. And I know everyone's busy, and I'm busy too, but as I look back at that table, I'm sad. Because we're really so busy that we don't have time to collect food for people who won't have a Thanksgiving. There's not enough food on there for one family. Now, we'll be collecting each week, so let's talk about baby steps. Maybe we make an extra trip this week to start to collect food for the needy in our own community. If we're not caring for the needy in our own community, then really we can't pretend to care necessarily about the needy beyond our community. I'm also aware that the pastors in the deep forest are desperately underfunded. Men who have sacrificed everything in a mission that we participate with to extend the gospel in one of the neediest, poorest, most godless places on the face of the earth. And it, what it costs to support a pastor, right? I think it's $30 a month. I thought, my goodness. So being, being convicted, I, of course, you know, I can't call you to something and not do it. I said, how, how 